Hi everyone, I'm Dylan, founder and design educator at Curious Core. Welcome to our Smart Scaling with CX Fluency podcast series, where we bring you conversations with consultants and CEOs of small and medium enterprises or CEOs of small and medium enterprises. We explore how becoming more fluent in customer experience can help your business grow by learning from people who have succeeded in doing just that. And now, let's talk to our special guest for this episode. Uh, we have Dr. Richard Clayton here, and we're speaking about uh, change during COVID and how, as leaders, we should manage change during COVID. And I, I was just wondering, like, what are your thoughts on, you know, this compression of time? The way, the way I think about it is there's, there's been three stages of um, COVID uh, and that, that we can learn from and... and that, that are teaching us about leadership in, in digitalizing or digitally transforming organizations and, and the speed at which they happen. So that the first stage is, is that unprepared stage. So when COVID first hit and, and governments were telling companies that they had to send their employees home and work from home was sort of was mandatory. That's when the sort of the, the, the years and years of digital transformation had to happen at an absolute rapid pace. So six to eight weeks, you know, most organisations were, were, were doing that kind of work at, at, at that speed. And what happened was you, know, you had a high, high levels of productivity and high levels of engagement as, as you were doing this rapid change. And employees were trying to, you know, they were motivated. The, 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 the flag was flying to save the organisation. They were motivated to do things quickly. They were motivated to solve problems. There was a degree of autonomy because lots of the business's usual work was taken away from them while they were trying to solve these problems. And I think we learned a lot about our employees in that six to eight week period, how capable they were of, of changing, which of course goes against the standard narrative of people resist change. So that there was a lot of learning to be done about the capabilities of employees in that first stage. The second stage, uh, which has sort of been going on after that eight week period, is the slow injection or re-injection of business as usual practices back into this work from home stroke hybrid working experience. And as that injection continues, we're seeing uh, more and more challenges from, from the, the, the work from home experience. So, so all of this fluidity and fast paced and complex problem solving and creativity and dealing with stuff and is slowly disappearing to be replaced by, you know, for some people I've spoken to, you know, seven and a half, eight hours of back to back Zoom calls, sitting in the same chair, in the same room, having meetings with lots of people, none of whom whose face they see. Um, and, and that's their day. And then they've still got to do the work they're paid to do. They've actually got to deliver. So you're seeing the, these hours expand from sort of a, an eight hour day to a 10 or 12 hour day as, as these meeting, interminable meetings get in the way. Um, and whilst sort of lots of organisational measurements sort of goes, oh, look, this is great. They're working more hours. It's more productive. We're beginning to get worried about the mental health of employees and we're beginning to get worried about uh, innovation because with, no one's having time to do any of the, the creative discussions that lead to innovation because your day's just blocked out by this business as usual meetings and, and, and the stuff you've got to get done. So what I think we're entering into now is the third stage of this, this transformation, where there's this recognition by leaders that we can't carry on like this because we can't have mentally unwell employees doing cognitively complex work that needs to help organisations innovate and strategize and, and find future business models and compete with across the world in, in, in this, this, this global economy. Um, you've got to have mentally well employees. You've got to have them working quickly. We've, we've got to change. So I think that's where we are now is thinking about, well, what do we do now? Because we can't carry on doing this because it's whilst we solve the initial problems and they're things we should learn from, we're now finding that current practice is getting in the way and in a way that's potentially quite harmful. So that's where I think we are now. Thanks for sharing, Dr. Richard Clayton. And I was just wondering, like, 
if this is happening right now, and I'm sure some of you here are experiencing this um, as we're speaking about it, um, what might be the possible, you know, second order effects or like impact that's going to come? Like if this isn't taken care of, you know, if we don't address it, what's going to happen? At the very worst, we're going to see sweeping mental health problems. So we, we're going to see people struggling to, to actually cope with, with these long days and being trapped in the same place and not enough exercise, a, a sort of a, a feeling of being poisonously attached to the workplace, you know, if, especially if, if huge levels of surveillance have been brought in, because we've seen a 300 times increase in surveillance technology. So if you're being surveilled in your own bedroom to see whether you're doing the work... Uh, and then you're trapped in that space all the time. That can be really quite poisonous. So that, that you can you can see a bad second order impact happening at, at that worst level. I actually think there is there's quite a lot of leadership chatter around this problem. I still think at, at many levels it, it, it's at the level of well washing. Yeah, we've got, to, we've got to at least begin to take the idea of mental health seriously. But I don't think they've delved deeply into what that actually means. So I think, I think that's the first, the first one. The second one is the problem with innovation. So, so what research clearly tells us is 90% plus of, of actual ideation and, and, and innovative ideas happen during semi-formal and informal communication. And none of it happens in brainstorming meetings. It all happens in the, the, the water cooler chat or the pre-work cup of coffee or the post-work drink in a bar where people from different departments get together and chat about their, their day and their work and, and interesting ideas get exchanged and someone says, oh, what, we've done this, why don't you try that? And suddenly you've got an innovative movement. So I don't, I don't see much chatter about that. And I, don't, I also don't see any, anybody getting close to solving that through the, the Zoom room um, meetings, because how do you have informal conversations in a formalised screen? I think that's the second order. The third one is going to be a rebirth of culture. And that can go in two ways as well. So I, again, because I think many leaders are, are beginning to appreciate that you need to have behavioural levers to, to try and deal with some of these challenges. The obvious behavioural lever is culture, because that's the thing people have been talking about for 40 years. So I think there's a reinterest in culture, uh, and people are taking it a lot more seriously rather than just this thing that we've got to have because everybody has a culture and everybody's supposed to sell the culture to get people into the job. So there's, there's a, a real interest and a deep interest in, in doing something meaningful at that cultural behavioural level. And I think that's good. But what I'm worried about is it gets used as a control mechanism because there's all this uncertainty and, and complexity and ambiguity in, in the system. There's a tendency in humans to try and squeeze and, and control a lot more. So you could see culture go into this sort of, we're going to make our culture stronger and stronger and stronger because without it, we're not going to get the employee performance because there's this sort of um, belief system, which I don't think is, is accurate. But there's a belief that culture equals performance. I actually think performance equals stories of good culture. So I think it goes the other way around. But there's this belief that if you if you get the culture right and it's it's unified and everybody believes in it and they share the values, then, then you get this wonderful performance. So that's one thing I think that might happen. What I think needs to happen is this awareness that in all organisations, especially large complex ones, there are always subcultures. And in those subcultures, that's where the cross-functional innovative chats happen when you're having people from different subcultures. And that just means they have different interpretations of the way work needs to be done and then related to the disciplines that they work in. And then they talk about it when they meet in various different informal spaces. And you also have the loss of contested interpretations. So a contested interpretation, again, is a source of innovation because you actually have one person saying, well, I perceive the behaviour should be like this and I perceive the answer should be like this and somebody else says, no, I think it should be like this. And that, again, very often happens informally because psychologically safe spaces and meetings are, are still just emerging. They're not established everywhere. So I think that could go too. So you're actually going to potentially find 
large organisations, uh, large complex organisations that are trying to be more innovative, losing all the spaces in which innovation happens. And so that's the third second order effect that I, I could see happening. Well, thanks for sharing. There's a lot of great points over there. I think what I hear and sort of this loss of sanity in in terms of being in Zoom meetings after Zoom meetings, and I hear that a lot from the people we talk to and, and, and I work with, even from friends as well. Uh, that's definitely true. So you spoke about the loss of these spaces where serendipity ideation can kind of like happen. How should we manage that as as leaders of organizations right now, especially if we are in lockdown and we have restrictions not to go back to office, you know, how do we bring that back? Uh, is there like an example that you could perhaps share with us? I mean, at, at the moment, it's pretty artificial. Uh, and I think that that's all it can be. I mean, I mean, I say it's pretty artificial. I think the methodology that, that you talked about, the dialogic learning that, that we've developed is not artificial. But in general, it's, it's sort of quite artificial. So what, you, what you're seeing is, you know, people having Friday drinks together um, on a Zoom call. Or you were. I'm not sure if that's still going on. But that, that was I see early. That. Like, yeah. oh, let's, have a, let's have a cocktail. I, yeah, I, I heard stories about that. That's true. So let's have a cocktail session where we, we we just drink together or let's have a birthday party together or eat together on a Zoom call, which is not bad in itself. And I think it's probably better to do that than not to do it if as long as you haven't already gone through 38 hours of Zoom calls in the week, because you're then enabling... The possibility for these informal communication chats to happen, you're, you're, you're creating an environment where, where it might happen. Um, you've probably got some of it going on in, in somewhat cynical WhatsApp communications between various people. Um, that's certainly been my experience where that cynical uh, interpretation of reality or ironic interpretation of irony is going on, uh, the situation is going on behind the scenes in secret. So there's a possibility that these kind of things are still happening in secret and there's a, a way of, of, of trying to surface them as long as the people don't get punished for these secret communications behind the scenes. Yeah. I think that that has always gone on and that probably is still going, almost certainly is still going on. Yeah. I think during our chat, we mentioned something about culture and we mentioned something about subculture, right? Mm -hmm. So all this secret communication is probably like, could be subculture and, and could be a culture that's not being aware. And we spoke about this idea that specifically during leadership, right? Uh, there are leaders who have the official title and have the power and the influence over others. And we talk about unofficial leaders as well, leaders who don't necessarily have the title, but have a lot of influence mm. uh, over others. What are your thoughts on that in terms of like subcultures and all these people who have like influence? Uh, have they gained more influence right now um, during this period? I, I, I think at the moment it's probably too, too early to tell because this communication is all underneath the radar and, and, and being done in private. Um, I think there's less awareness of. Uh, I think you're going to be you're going to have smaller groups of people talking together. It's not going to bubble outside your your smaller social network in in these behind the scenes electronic communications because there's there's a higher level of trust if you're being slightly cynical or ironic or saying things that that are not necessarily said in a formal environment. If you're writing it, there's a higher level of trust to who you're writing with. So you're probably going to lose some of this between silo movements where, where other people would, might pick up on the thought. So I, th I think that's, that's a challenge. But in mm. terms of, you know, that, that idea of, of different types of leaders, so I think that there are two different ways of perceiving the challenge of the formal leader, so the one that has authority. So firstly, there might be, at this time, the problem of authority, because it's easy if you're the leader with the authoritative position and the power, it becomes very easy, or in fact too easy, to just say this to go into the control mode. This has to be done because you're like I'm the one in power, so I'm going to do it. And I'm not seeing anyone. I'm not seeing their faces. I'm not seeing their reactions. I'm not having the communications with them. So I'm just going to go. This needs to be done. So the authority that you have could be getting into the way of good leadership. 
Whereas what needs to be done, in, as, as everything's quite fragmented and split, is a bit more of a diffusion and distribution of leadership so that there's a bit more autonomy. And we know for a fact that autonomy and, and high-quality work from home uh, go together. If you strip away the autonomy, then you strip away the performance. So some kind of distributed leadership. Then the other two things, which, which is always the under-the-radar leadership. So sometimes can be good and sometimes can be bad. So you, you talked about the cultural leadership. So there you have culture carriers. So social network analysis sort of finds cultural carriers. So who's the, peop- the people in the organisation who spread the way that is done, things are done around here and, and, and everything goes through? So they're the ones that, that sort of own the culture. And they're not necessarily formal leaders. They're just people who've been there for a long time or they've got lots of people around them and they, they tell powerful stories about the culture and the organisation that, that persuades people that this is how things are done. Which can be good or bad. Obviously, if the culture is a good culture and, and, and it, it's, it's enabling, that can be a really good position to have. But if you're trying to change things, they can be very dangerous characters because they, they're, they're blocking change by saying, oh, this is stupid and this is foolish and you shouldn't listen to it. So that's the culture carrier sort of informal leader. And then you've got the maverick informal leader, or in the language I use, the ironist. And the ironist is the one who's having these sort of slightly cynical, ironic, sceptical, pragmatic interpretations of what's going on, seeing the gap between the expectations and... Uh, the reality or, or the aspirations and achievements and sort of playing around in that gap saying well you know this makes more sense or that makes more sense but the challenge with that character is they might be coming up with fantastic answers that you know that they're, they're in the sweet spot where their probing of the gap is is a really cognitively complex probing and it, and it ends up with with innovative answers that, that can solve significant problems but they could be oddballs and if they're oddballs and you overly listen to them and they just come in with crazy random stuff that can be quite harmful as well so that i mean there are ways of of sort of making sure that it's not too oddball the stuff that they're doing Uh, and there are ways of making sure they're in the sweet spot Uh, they do exist in all organizations they fly below the radar i think the research suggests that about 30 percent of everyone who shows this complexity of thinking is flying below the organizational radar and is never noticed for that kind of contribution so they will still be doing what they do via electronic communication but it might not be reaching the same level of network of people which could be good or could be bad depending on how oddball or how insightful they are Hmm. Yeah, I think uh, that reminds me a lot of the role uh, Jester plays in the English court, right? Back in the medieval times, the king usually employs a jester and the jester plays the role uh, of like the devil's advocate to to speak about issues. Is that kind of a similar role we're seeing like over here in organizations? Yeah, I mean, speaking truth to power in a humorous way. I mean, that's that's what the ironist does. And, and, and as we chatted about last time, that the Socratic ironist is the, the, the archetype ironist through the Roman satires when they treated him as almost a jester, foolish character with, with, with great good humour, became the archetype for the fool. So it's the same archetype, it's the same, it's, it's the same history of mm. you need this character, you need this gadfly that, that prods and pokes humorously in order to, especially in transformational times, especially when things are ambiguous and complex and unclear, you need these people who show every indication of coping with these kind of power clashes and ambiguities and thriving in it. Not just coping, I mean thriving in it. It's something that inspires them and energises them. We've known that this character type happens in transformational times for two and a half thousand years. I mean, they they constantly pop up in literature and in histories and in dramas. The research that I've done and others have done in in organisational transformations, both in the the shift into the strong culture movement in the the 80s and then in the work I was doing, which was sort of, you know, the last 15 years where we've been moving into a more digitally transforming pattern – They appear, and they appear everywhere. They just don't get noticed. The Mm. research that I've I've sort of done is, is if you notice them and you listen to them, 
you will solve problems more rapidly because they will frame the question. They might not have the answer, but they will tell you the important question. And if they tell you the important question, then you're in a space where, where you can start grappling with what the right answer might be. Lovely. I really like the concept of the maverick, and I think they definitely have a role in organizations, especially organizations undergoing true change. So we've spoken a little bit about how to take care of this maverick. How about the cultural carriers? Like, how should we treat them, or how should we take care of them uh, if we have a cultural carrier in our team? So yeah, you will you will have them in your teams. I mean, there's an awful lot of them. I would treat them with kid gloves to an extent. Okay, maybe kid gloves is the wrong word, but but they are important because if you don't persuade them that whatever you're doing culturally or behaviorally is engages them and, and um, is useful in in their perspective, then you can't change anything because they will attract people around their version of what's going on who are close to them and speak to them regularly, more than the executive who's six levels away can do by writing a set of values on the wall and saying, do that. So you've got to engage with them. And if you don't engage with them, it is almost impossible to get any behavioral change done. Hmm. Yeah. Would you say cultural carriers are also people who glue the team together? Are they also the ones who bring people together and make sure things happen? Or are they like different roles? I think that might be a, someone in between the cultural carrier and, and the, the, the jester or the ironist. The gluing of people together, you, you've, you've got to actually take the values seriously and the culture seriously. You've got to care. And, and sometimes the ironist is just too playful and doesn't care enough. And the jester doesn't care. You've got to have that, that care. But you've also got to have the, the witty, humorous, interpersonal communication style that glues people together. And the willing, the willingness to be the, the collaborator who helps everybody else rather than the selfish individual who takes all the credit. And, and my favourite story from this is from a book called Peopleware, which is a, a long, longitudinal, so 30 plus years study of complex project work. And one of their clients was downsizing and they... They were looking at who to get rid of, and then they said, oh, this lady here, she's not very good at coding, and she's not particularly good at QA, so she's an obvious candidate. And, and, and the researchers said, yeah, but she's the only person in your organisation who has never, ever worked on a failing project. Every project she's, she's been on has been successful. So, yeah, she's the glue, and they called her the project glue. She's the glue that glues your teams together. Within the, the complexity project uh, work, that's called someone who has the ability with the complexity of interaction, the interpersonal skills to keep everything calm and moving when, when all the tensions run high and, and the arguments are going, etc., etc. And she got fired anyway. And you're just like, oh, please. And that's the case. This kind of person, because they spend so much time gluing everybody else together, they tend to miss their own KPIs. When the crunch hits, they're like, oh, we'll just, we'll just look at KPIs and get rid of them. And then you're getting rid of the glue. And once you get rid of the glue, fragmentation sets in and you're less likely to be successful. Yeah, I think it's a really good point that you brought on. As a leader, we should be conscious about the roles. We should be conscious about the power dynamics that people play in organizations. And it's interesting that we spoke about the culture carriers which are like the torchbearers of the culture in the organization we spoke about the mavericks who are like jesters of olden times in the in the english court i think during our earlier conversation you also mentioned there are blockers and gatekeepers in <laughs> in organizations so what kind of role do they play and do you think it's a productive or unproductive Oh, the, the blocker is always unproductive. Um, one of the challenges I have, so, so for a project that I was doing with, with a current client, actually, um, we were looking at identifying the jester or the maverick or the ironist within their organisations because they needed to find people who were willing to grapple with radical change in an organisation that hadn't experienced radical change for, or, or an industry that hadn't experienced radical change for 40 years. So they were, we were doing a network analysis to try and find these people. And as a joke, 
I went back into the research. These are the characteristics that you can find through social network analysis of the, the ironic enabler, the, the maverick. What are the characteristics of the blocker? And can we, could we also identify them? So I, so I wrote down the, the, the characteristics of the blocker. And um, I showed them to, to someone reasonably senior in um, a North American organization that's gone through the, it's been in the news quite a lot recently. We won't name them, but sure. they're quite famous for not the best of reasons. And he looked at it and it was these seven characteristics and he, I still kept his text. He went, holy shit, that's literally our hiring playbook. Yeah, the seven characteristics of blocking leadership are the seven characteristics they were hiring for. So, you know, partly one of them was this desperately serious, over-exaggerated, the culture is great kind of mentality. That, that was one of them. Uh, another one would be the, they would put the fear of God into people to get things done. They just were overly emphasizing the emotion of work and the joy in work and they weren't allowing any kind of critical commentary to, to appear ever hmm. i mean that still blew me away and so we then we created a social network analysis well how do we find these people and and so, not many organizations will sign up for that let me tell you <laughs> well it's brave that your client did and what happened after that did they change the job description did they sort of let people go you know uh, I mean, since um, we're not <laughs> revealing names here. Well, I mean, they actually have a, a core value which they absolutely live with is family and do not fire anyone, do not make anyone redundant. So the challenge there is, and we, and we weren't going to find, because of the industry, we weren't going to find any of these high-tech, super culture carrier kind of, yeah, yeah, kind of person. But what we were trying to do was to find these, these leaders via social network analysis, and we're still trying to do that with, with the client who they're in position of leadership, but they haven't got the level of complexity of thinking to be at that level. So there's a narrow perspective rather than a plural perspective on, on the work that needs to be done. And then that's where the blocking comes in because they're not listening to anything, any other opinion is perceived as critique and negativity rather than contributory. And so we're still working with that. And the aim is because they won't, they won't fire anyone which is a great thing. It will not make people redundant. But what we can do is find them quickly and then develop them quickly. So the second part of the project is how, how do you develop these people at pace? I mean, you, you can't spend another 10 years developing them because they could cost you millions of dollars being in that position. How do you develop them at pace so that they can get up to the speed with the complexities of the task and the complexities of the change because it is radical change and not be blockers anymore and i think that for me i i do believe that an awful lot of humans and i think as we've seen for the first point during the radical change of, of covid given the right environment and the right opportunity can rapidly develop and they're very capable of doing more than you ever thought they were capable of and so that's what we're working in is how do we rapidly get them up to that if we throw them the ball instead of them dropping it first of all how do they catch it secondly how do they catch it and run with it and thirdly how do they catch it run with it and score a touchdown that's what we're trying to do at pace that's a tall order. Uh, did you all successfully like uh, complete that? Like, what kind of interventions did you had to do in order for them to keep up with that pace and and just like? I mean, it, 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 th this is another hour long conversation in itself. <laughs> so, um, sure. I mean, there there are a whole bunch of things you can do to try and develop the complexity of thinking in people. I mean, the first thing you do is you evaluate it and you can see where the gaps are. And then you're filling in those gaps through through various, uh, all kinds of different intervention techniques. I mean, partly what we do is we try and, and create dialogic environments. Mm -hmm. So when you do le most leadership development training, um, the, the really popular stuff mm -hmm. comes out of literature from the sort of 1930s to the 1960s where you're you're the therapist of the employee and you're that you're trying to motivate and engage them and that's we, we don't really think of leadership like that anymore in practice but that's where most leadership development practice comes out of and that's what people buy we don't do any of that we're more around 
okay, here's complex situations. How can we get you thinking about this situation from four different perspectives? So we'll bring in different metaphors, right? How do you see this when you're using the, the machine metaphor, for example? So if you think of the organization as a machine, how do you see this problem? Right now we're going to move away and you're going to think of the organization as a culture. How do you see this problem? And then we can throw in radical metaphors like, well, your organization is a psychic prison. You're in Plato's cave and you're trapped inside your own head and that's what everyone else is experiencing. How do you see the organisation that way? Without necessarily going into that, the richness of the history. And then they slowly begin to sort of see that their way of seeing the organisation isn't the way that everybody else sees it, nor is it necessarily the best way. And it's not, again, necessarily to make them have the answers. You're trying to give them the, the willingness and the ability to open up the floor for dialogue and to manage a dialogue well enough so answers emerge from it at pace. And they're not just listening to the voices that support their own opinion. They're willing to, to hear what other people think and what other people have to say to really wrestle with what the best solution might be. So that, that's one thing we do. We would also teach them about safe-to-fail experiments. So a safe-to-fail experiment is something that when you put it together, if it fails, it's going to fail without costing you lots of time and money. And as part of that, you have real radical candor where they've got to say, this is how I'm going to do it, and this is what I would do, and then other people will tear it apart. A bit like the, if you've ever seen the Pixar... It's like uh, Shark Tank, thing. no? Yeah, a bit like Shark Tank, but it's done with a bit more subtlety and love. Okay. Um, so it's more like Pixar. Have you ever seen any of the... There's a, a documentary on the making of The Incredibles where they, mm. the Pixar team will show the movie to... So this it's kind of like a critique audience. of the story yeah. and, and everyone will chip in and, oh, this is like how I think this story can be improved. Yes, and what you're doing with the experiment is you're trying to find every single way it's not safe to fail. So if we do this, is this going to harm people? Is this going to harm the bottom line? Is this going to get expensive rapidly? You know, do we have this kind of money? So you, you've got to break it down into a... And once it's safe to fail, yeah, then you can run with it. That, that makes a lot of sense. It's like scenario planning, right? It's like, what is the what could possibly go wrong? And you're trying mitigating all the potential risk in, in yeah, that Yeah, so scenario planning at a, I would say, at a, at a practice level or an operational level rather than a strategic level with, if you do it well, you're instead of just, because most scenario planning is three or four scenarios um, with all these various clues, if it's done well, that, that, that can help you to determine which one's unfolding. With safe-to-fail experiments, you could end up with 10, 20 different experiments at the, at the end of the process, all of which you can run almost in parallel if you've got enough people and know how to test and, and know what the, what the expected outcomes are and know how to shut them down if they're not working before they start costing you any time and money. So it's a sort of a ramped up version of scenario planning. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Back in the user experience design or design thinking practice, we actually advocate for a test and learn culture and the spirit of experimentation is very much in our DNA. So should these say experiments only be given to the mavericks or what sort of your thoughts like working with people like or clients that you work with i believe you work with naked hub which was acquired by WeWork and a few other companies yeah do you have any stories to share so naked hub is one of the best examples i've ever seen of the autonomous team in a complex environment, especially how busy they got as co-working was sort of going, whoomph. So, so for, for some context for people who are not in Hong Kong, Naked Hub is a co-working space that was acquired by WeWork. Can you share a little bit about the background and the history as well, Richard? So just through an accident of friendship, I got to know the executive team in Hong Kong Naked Hub and started coaching some of them and working with some of them in, in various different contexts. And the model that they had in place, now whilst Deborah, who is the managing general manager here, she, she doesn't have the theoretical background I have, but intuitively she was doing all of this kind of self-organising, sense-making, scanning the environment with the front desk teams. Now, while 
you know, you don't traditionally think of a front desk team in a co-working space as being particularly energetic and going out and doing all this kind of stuff all the time. I mean, they weren't magnificent at it. So one of the things that they put into place was you've got to proactively see problems. So you're, you're going up to the customer and you're seeing, empathising with them and seeing that they're, they're in trouble and going up to them rapidly and saying, can I help and how can I help? Mm. But we also had things, you know, the, the interpersonal relationships so that, you know, if I'd been away in, in Australia for a few weeks to do some work, I'd come back and the front desk team would know where I'd been, know how long I'd been away from, shake my hand as I came back in, tell me, oh, you've got this event and that event that might, you know, so, so there was this incredible knowledge of what was going on. And it was all around this sort of autonomous go out and um, and behave in, in ways that felt right and, and, and run experiments as well. They would run all kinds of experiments in terms of, and, and I did a bunch with them, let's try this kind of workshop, let's try this kind of event and see what happens. It was fabulous. What was the challenge when they were engaging you in, especially as I know your expertise and is around change, it's around organization design. Yeah, what was the challenge they were facing? So most of what we talked about was complexities of scaling. So there was a challenge in the language that was coming out of China at the time. So China was saying that we're a startup. And I was saying, well, you're not a startup, you're a scale-up because you're operating in two different countries across got 15 different locations with seven other locations in seven other countries opening up. This is not the problems of a startup. This is the problems of a scale-up. So what we were trying to do is because Hong Kong was doing so well and the practices that they had here was how can you turn these quite intuitive ways of doing things into a number of practices that could scale within China and you know, in these new companies that were opening up. So we were trying to get them out of the language of we're agile and, and agile in a, I don't understand what agile means, but it's trendy, um, to that you're going into the research that as soon as you go in from startup to scale up, there are certain behavioral things that have to change. If you cling on to the behavioral instincts and then the high commitment models of a startup in a complex scale up, things start to go wrong because you don't get the... You don't get the insights and the questions from various members of the team. So that's what we were dealing with, was, was that tension and that challenge and the feeling of the stretch of how do, we, you know, how do we maintain the culture that we have and how do we scale it elsewhere because it's been so successful. Awesome. And yeah, I, I feel like a lot of scale-ups, a lot of companies right now are facing uh, what we call VUCA word, right? Volatile, uncertain well and i think over our conversation you spoke about vuca leaders um could you just elaborate on vuca leaders so what we're looking at again and it sort of goes back to the first thing that i i talked about this idea of the initial work from home experience uh energizing everybody's brain okay because everyone was solving problems and nobody was ready for it so you know the vuca is how do we engage everybody's sense-making capacity? How do we have everybody a scanner of the horizon to see what's coming next? Because none of us are as smart as all of us. So how do you create, again, it's this scanning network of people. And that means pushing leadership to the edges of the organisation. And so someone right on the edge can say, hey, I'm seeing this, and, and stick their head up and, and say, I'm saying this. Is anyone else seeing this? Because uh, we know, again, it's clear from research that to get what people at the edges of the organisation seeing up to the central leadership is a very difficult thing to do. And you've got to enable that within the, the environment. And really, that's, so for me, that's more about the C and the A of VUCA, the complexity and the ambiguity. So you're trying, you know, I'm seeing this effect. So the problem with complexity is cause and effect. You can see the effect, but you don't know what's causing it. So you've got to have people in the edges of the organisation sticking their head up and saying, look, I'm seeing this. Don't know what's causing it. Um, I have no idea how to solve it, but I'm seeing it. Okay? Without their manager going, don't bring me problems, bring me solutions, because that kills it instantly. So you've got that sensor network. And then you've got the ambiguity. Is that, so because we don't know what's causing it, there are many possible interpretations. You know, and we know that, that expertise is not necessarily going to give us the right answer. So how do we get 
seven or eight different possible reasons for the cause and start interrogating them. Well, we can't do that if there's only one person in the position of authority saying, I know the answer because I'm in the authority position. We can only do it if we've got ideas emerging from, again, from the edges or from other parts of the organisation. Well, I think it's this and I think it's that and I think it's the other. And again, research is very clear to show that if you're having to make a decision between you know, possible, we'll do this or we'll do that or we'll do the other. It doesn't matter if they're stupid, because if you've got one that's obviously wrong on the table, it's actually easier to make the decision about what the best model is than if that one isn't being discussed in the first place. So having being attuned to what is obviously wrong helps you make the right choice as to what the best way forward is. So again, you've got to enable this kind of sense-making and language and to come at you from all parts of the organisation. And then you've got to have some kind of collaborative participatory decision-making, at least at some part of the process, as it bubbles up through the system. Well, that's really lovely. And I wanted to pick out a few themes that we've covered tonight since we're almost at the end. And... Uh, I think you were mentioning about this idea of sense-making, understanding what's around you and how that has related to the client you work with, which is Naked Hub. And you also mentioned something about trust and collaboration, especially in this age, we lose serendipitous conversations because of uh, COVID and we're now all on Zoom channels. And that sense of trust and collaboration is sort of lost in translation. You also mentioned something about autonomy, that ability to self-organize, um, moving from centralized control to more semi-decentralized sort of control. And I think that's something you also mentioned earlier as well. Towards the end, you are mentioning about how do we make higher quality decisions overall. And higher quality decisions are made when people actually go to the edge and bring you problems, but you solve it from different perspectives and you solve it as a group and not as a, as a single person, right? Because we talk about in Asian leadership structure, it's traditionally very much like there's the head and then there's the hands and the feet, which are like operating. But now in this COVID world, we're like, okay, the head and the hand and the feet are all disconnected. So how did it go? Was there anything you'd like to elaborate based on what I just like shared? Yeah, there's one little bit. So you talk about head and the hands. And what I'm seeing in the neuroscience research at the moment, and because we all love neuroscience nowadays, it's very trendy and it is worth talking about. So what I'm seeing in some of the neuroscience is, is that the idea is that the hand only does the practical work. Because you, you reach out for the known with your hands and it's driven by the side of the brain that deals with process and structure and and so your right hand, if you're just using your hand, it's all about the process and the structure. The other side of your brain is dealing with the creativity and the exploration and the the, the way to explore the unknown and the uncertain. And if I'm saying anything, it's... It's, we're not using that side of the brain enough anymore. We've developed organisations that are purely left-brain and right-handed, and they only run on process. And that's not enough in a, in a complex and an ambiguous world. Yeah, that's so true. And I've seen so many companies uh, have that issue because they've sort of put their management to have all the decision-making power without actually involving the ground level stuff and the people who are actually close to the customers. So there's a lot of that context being lost uh, when decisions are actually made at that high level. And now there's even more context being lost because of the communication tools not being able to imitate what we get from like a physical environment. And I wanted to also give you a chance to talk a little bit about your PhD dissertation on GFG Alliance, which is a steel company. The dissertation was on a different company. Oh, okay, right. But you mentioned something about um, GFG Alliance, which is a steel mm. company, and we were speaking about innovation because quite a number of our listeners here are interested. Like, how can we help our organization be more customer-centric or be more innovative? Yeah, would you like to share a little bit about that case study? Um, so, yeah, my case study came out of steel. We were looking at 
again, irony, the ironic perspective in steelwork transformation from, you know, and, and people think steelworkers aren't going to be ironic and aren't going to be radical and aren't going to be innovative. And of course, that's far from the truth. And, and Clayton Christensen illustrated that with the mini mills, which were radical and innovative and, and changed the steel industry and underpinned his entire thesis. So what we found was, and, and it's not just my research, so the same thing has, has appeared in Japanese manufacturing, research in Japanese manufacturing, just research in American high-tech corporations. So what you find in this research is there are certain people in the organisation who have the complexity of thinking to understand what is going on and in a way that's imaginative whilst effective. Because lots of people who are innovative can't actually, they've got the ideas, but they can't deliver. And lots of people who are very good at process don't actually have the ideas. So we're looking for people who can do both. So what we found in our research is Within the organisation, we kept on coming up with people who poked fun at the managers, who poked fun at the organisation, who poked fun at themselves, who poked fun at the research. And they were the ones we constantly went to because they were the only people who knew what was going on. And that appears in because they had this, they had this deep curiosity of what's going on here, what's going on here. The real contribution of my research is that the standard model that we think about in terms of change. If you think of the, the innovation, Rogers innovation curve, where you've got the sort of, you know, the 2% of innovators on one side and the laggards in the other. And we said, no, that's not what it seems to look like in most organisations. It might do when you're buying an iPhone, but for organisational change, what it seems to look like is you have some zealots, maybe about 10%, who just go, no, change, the change is a new vision, fantastic, amazing. You've got some cynics, again, maybe about 10%. And then you've got a bunch of the rest of the 80% in the middle. And that 80% has never been looked at in any real meaningful way. Now, part of these people, they're totally and utterly confused. So part of this 80% is just like, I have no idea what's going on. This is confusing. The management doesn't seem to make sense. And, you know, my job's changing in a way that doesn't seem to make sense. I'm totally bewildered. And that's a big part of them. And you've got another that are, are play acting. They're colluding with the process in order not to lose their job. So they're going, yeah, okay, it doesn't make that much sense to me, but I'm going to play the game anyway. I'm not, I don't actually believe in it, but I'm, I'm just going to do the role acting and do that kind of game. And two different levels. One is I'm going to play the game because I'm Machiavellian and I want power. And the other is I'm going to play the game because there doesn't seem to be another game in town. So I'm just going to do it. And, and that's just the way work is. So it's almost a... A realist sort of perspective um, and then we just found out that there's this other group and they're doing fantastic interesting stuff and all of the great these great ideas and they seem to exist in every organizational type so the aim if they exist in steelworks and they exist in Japanese manufacturing they exist everywhere. It's so these, just these about are not finding them. the zealots you're speaking about. These are kind of. This is the ironist. Yeah, the this zealot, is the ironist we, we were speaking. Yeah, the zealot is, is not that useful in terms of, of convincing people in a complex organization to change because you get you know you get irritated with the zealots because they just go oh no you know let's light the fire and then let's all go in this one direction. You know they they can be very irritating for people who are going well that doesn't help me with my work your zeal and the cynics can be very irritating as well because it's like well you know don't be so bloody negative um you know there's, there's still stuff we can do so so we're looking for that and they, they show skepticism and they show pragmatism and they show good humor and they play and they're happy with in the ambiguous space we illustrated very clearly that they're the highest performing people in transforming organizations. Not only have you got to find them, you've got to protect them, because if you can protect them and then find, you know, put them in various different teams doing the transformational work, all kinds of interesting things happen. And we spoke about some of the ways to kind of nurture and, and groom them. Is there any tips or advice you would give companies <laughs> to find these mavericks or ironists as you call them um and and then protect them yeah um yeah i mean i i'm used to finding them at pace now i mean i can almost do it just by watching people's body language but there there are i mean social network analysis that's what we were working on in in terms of you know who are the people that you want to go and have a drink with after work who are the people that make you laugh who are the people that you go to 
just because you don't know what's going on in the organisation and, and you know that they probably know who to speak to. So there's, there's a whole bunch of ways of trying to find them. And once you've found them, well then, I mean, again, it's trendy and it's become pop psychology and there are so many snake oil salesmen doing it, but you've got to create a psychologically safe space where they can stick their head above the parapet and say what needs to be said. So once they're in the, the environment, you've got to protect them within the environment. You've got to, to enable them to say, this is what I think. I think one of the companies that's most succeeded in this is Bridgewater, where they actually say, if you don't do that, that's a reason for firing you. You know, your, your job is to, to stick your head up and say, I think this, even if it's critical. And you've got to justify it. You can't just go, I think this because it's my opinion and opinions are equal as facts. That doesn't work. You've got to justify why you think it and have a meaningful conversation about it. But it, even if it's totally critical and to the level that you're saying to the CEO, you are wrong and you're a first year employee. So you're wrong, your performance was bad and I'm, I'm a nobody. The CEO responds by saying, yes, you're correct. And then, and in Bridgewater case, emails the entire organisation with this review of his performance by a junior saying he was getting D minus. So everyone in the organisation saw that this green newbie rated him D minus. And then tells everyone about it in a TED talk and then writes a book about it. <laughs> so it's that level of this is what we want to see and we've got yeah. to have a thick enough skin to go without it. Ego gets in the way, uh, opinions based on nothing other than gut instinct get in the way and we can't do the quality of work we need to do. And the ironist opens the space to do this. So protect mm. them with everything you've got. Yeah, and... I think that was a great book. I, I read Principles uh, some time ago uh, by Ray Dalio, who runs Bridgewater Associates. Amazing transparency in his entire organization. Quite scary even to a certain extent. And if there's actually anything I took away today is that as a leader, to be more aware about the roles people play in organizations and just being mindful about how they're playing those roles and are they even as you say, performing, right? Are they trying to like act, uh, act out a certain role or are they actually sincere in terms of like trying to drive change and trying to ensure that as a collective, as a group, we actually make it. I uh, wanted to ask if you have any closing thoughts just so we can end well, this. So just a comment on that. It doesn't matter if you're acting. As long as you're acting in a way that's trying to, to get you somewhere meaningful for both you and the organisation and the people you're working with. I mean, part of, part of becoming authentic is the feeling you're faking it because you, you're trying to inhabit a role that's uncomfortable for you. So putting the role first, you know, and I think we, we've forgotten about the importance of the characteristics of the role. And it's not the role, my personality is everything and the role I don't have to adapt to. The adaptions to the role as you move through organisational life are absolutely necessary. And as you move into those roles, initially you're going to feel like you're acting. Then there's an elegance and sophistication in the acting that you want to be able to do. And you want to be able to do it for... Um, useful ends rather than just because you're Machiavellian and you want to ruthlessly destroy somebody else. But I don't 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 feel that just because you feel like you're acting that that's a problem. I think we all feel like that quite a lot of the time. And it's a it's a significant part of being human. And the ironic actor is the one that does it with wit and elegance and sophistication and that kind of stuff. And that will be a leaving point is be happy acting but do it with style. <laughs> and with that, I think that's that's really beautiful. And I, I hope in in the roles you play, that you play it with good intentions as well. Um, I do my best. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, like everyone, for everyone here who are, who are <laughs> listening in the audience. Well, I, I really appreciate that you spending time with us, uh, especially knowing that you have a, another engagement right after this. Thank you, Dr. Richard Clayton, for sharing your experiences with us. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please let me know what you think. Get in touch with me over email at mail at curiouscore.com. I would love to hear from you. Do also check out our previous interviews and other free resources at curiouscore.com. And until next time, I'll see you on the next episode. Take care and keep leaning into change. <laughs>